0: Hey, Sasha, how's it going?
1: It's going well. So we have Calvin Lunt on today, and I'm really excited to share this conversation with everyone. It was amazing.
0: Yeah, Calvin was the classically feminine boy, grew up to be gay, beautiful, beautiful man, and uh, a dancer, became a drag queen. And it, it feels like only this era could produce a trans woman Uh, out of calvin's life it feels to me anyway
1: yeah in some ways he's kind of got some aspects of the classic hsts but he wasn't really gender dysphoric as a child so you know as you'll hear he had a kind of chaotic upbringing and as he started to discover his sexuality uh some events in his life created a lot of shame around that and so as you'll hear calvin kind of did this pendulum swing from like one extreme type of identity to another? He had a you know a complicated relationship with his sexuality. He was a mixed-race kid in a working class family. And you know, he went from one kind of presentation to another. And it's interesting, Calvin also talks about how being a social media influencer with a significant following and having the cameras on him, how that yeah. impacted his sense of, of identity. And He was also very um, involved in, like, heavily um, drinking and drugs and stuff like that in the the gay party scene. And so he has a lot of different factors that impacted his sense of searching for identity. I think the important timeline pieces for our listeners is that at 25, he started transition. And this kind of came out of the blue. He's a funny story about how he told his mom. And then at 27, just two years later, he started to detransition, and part of that was sobriety and kind of realizing that there were some aspects of his identity, which he was living a lie, as he says. So with that, um, Calvin is also uh, currently working in the capacity of like a wellness coach and his training comes from spiritual practitioners he's encountered in different parts of the world and from his own kind of recovery and healing journey. So... With that said, I think we will introduce you to Calvin Lund.
0: Hi, I'm Stella O'Malley, a psychotherapist in Ireland.
1: And I'm Sasha Ayad,
0: an adolescent therapist in the
1: United States.
0: Through in-depth interviews, personal stories and psychological exploration, we probe the gender landscape within contemporary culture.
1: And we consider the implications of prioritizing personal identity over other aspects of the self.
0: This is the thinking person's take on gender.
1: Join us as we look at gender from a wider lens. Hi, Calvin. Nice to see you.
2: Hi, guys. Thank you for having me. Hi.
0: (laughs) It's good to have you here.
1: Yes, we're really thrilled. We've been trying to get you on the podcast for some time, so it's nice to be here. You have a really interesting story. And I think later on, we'll get into kind of your childhood and like how you kind of came to this long, windy journey. But I I wanted to start with kind of where you are now, because you've gone through such an evolution in terms of your search for self, your healing from all kinds of experiences. And you feel like you've really landed on a much healthier place. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about like, How did you get yourself out of all of the gender confusion and into a space where you are now?
2: It was was a very simple process, but a very simple process for a very complicated person, which I was, you know, I liked to overcomplicate things. And the simplicity of stepping away from society, stepping away from the noise and, you know, really tapping back into myself, really understanding, what those core conditions were that were placed upon me, how society, you know, has, has changed its roles of, of gender and sexuality and how this constant change is, is forever, you know, changing us as people. Now, just to say it super simply, you know, I sat in front of a mirror for six months naked and looked at every single aspect of my body and looked at every part of my body. And when I was able to realize that my thinking was so warped and my thinking was the thinking of so many other people around me and not of my own, that I was able to tap into my feelings more than anything. You know, I was, I was a child that was never really ever allowed to feel I was, I was a person that was never really able to express myself fully in the ways that I wanted to, and to know what emotions were healthily. Now, I had to learn all of those at the age of 27. You know, I was a 27-year-old person, not knowing where I was, who I was, without any structure in my life, and I had to find that structure. Now, my journey was I... I got sober you know i kind of addressed a lot of the the partying that i was doing in in the gay scene the kind of i noticed this normalization that we had of you know taking drugs and partying till late and 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 dancing in the clubs and we actually thought that it was a place of liberation and actually it was a place of escapism And, and we were all just in this nightclub dancing our gay shame away thinking it was super normal and i was able to to notice that and to see that, you know, at such a young age. And f- from, from that moment, um, you know, and actually it was seven years ago to this day um, on the 30th of June, 2016, when I actually said, enough is enough. You know, I kind of want to go a little bit deeper and understand what is actually going on for me. Um yeah
1: <laughs> wow so this marks an important day the day that we're recording this that's interesting <laughs> was there a a precipitating event that caused you to say enough is enough
2: at first you know i believed every problem that was happening to me was i believed was to do with my drinking my drinking escalated uh at a point in my life and i was you know, just coming on to a year of estrogen and, you know, hormone replacement, testosterone blockers. I I was, I was medicating. I was seen as, you know, this beautiful woman in society. I had everything that I, I felt like I needed in order to be happy, but things just weren't aligning. And, you know, my drinking had escalated at this point and I had kind of, looked at my consumption of alcohol and drugs and kind of thought you know it's quite normal but this one day i I tested myself you know i i went to a fashion show in liverpool i cycled there i took five pounds with me because i said to myself i'll take five pounds i'll be able to have one glass of wine and i will cycle back home now i managed to get to this fashion show i managed to drink two bottles of wine half a bottle of vodka with a few other people Um, I managed to get cocaine and I managed to come home with probably about 15 pounds in my pocket. And (laughs) I realized, (laughs) I made money. (laughs) I was a hustler. (laughs) Um, and I realized that I made this promise to myself that I was not going to drink and I actually drank more than I ever did. And the next day I woke up and I said, I'm going to make a change. And, you know, I got, I got sober that next day and, during my sobriety, you know, I I was living in a, a woman's refuge. I was living in a safe house with three other women. I was attending twelve um, step programs and I was in a um, a treatment center. Now I was in these this treatment center to address my alcoholism. That's why I was there. A, as for. a
0: trans woman.
2: As a trans woman, yes. Okay, keep going, yeah. So I went in as as Cal and people knew me as Cal and I was coming into three months of sobriety and this one day I was sat in a meeting and I just said, this is all a lie. You know, I have lived my whole life wearing masks and this was the biggest mask. My transition was the biggest mask I ever held because my whole entire life, my whole entire adult life, let's say was was a mission to destroy Calvin, if that was through alcohol, if that was through drugs, whether that was through allowing people to use my body. Like, I was just destructive towards myself. And when I realized actually, I'm doing the exact same thing, I'm still killing myself and I'm doing that in a capacity that is so normal and is so palatable to the world around me. And I'm actually being congratulated for it. And, you know, I left that meeting that day and my whole world was just like, I don't know. I felt like so much weight was lifted off my shoulders, but I didn't know what to do with it.
0: Whoa. You you remind me of so many people I knew in their 20s where they were running away from themselves in this kind of uh, this kind of under the banner of we're having fun and they couldn't run fast enough and it's slightly hysterical and it's it's very heightened and honestly there's some great fun to be had in the midst of it all but there's an awful lot of people escaping themselves and trying on different identities now obviously back in my day it wasn't a a trans identity but trying to be someone they weren't Mm -hmm. and and i do think sobriety often brings people to a kind of a yielding to themselves of this is who you are just yeah you know it, so, yeah
2: it, it allows you to meet yourself even though you don't want to meet yourself because that's the whole purpose of drinking and taking drugs and the running you know you just don't yeah. want to meet you um mm. Mm.
1: so when you met you for maybe the first time in a long time what were the parts of you that you had been so ashamed of and then what were the parts of you that you were like oh this is actually a lovely part because i can imagine when you suppress yourself in that way you're not only blocking off the parts of yourself you don't like but you're not able to connect with good aspects too so what were you discovering when you started to connect with yourself
2: I discovered how much of a gentle person I was and how sensitive I was to the world around me. You know, I think there's this, you know, I, I, okay, I come from a very working class Liverpool background. You know, men don't cry. You know, this is the kind of place that I grew up in. You know, now if you come to the south of England and you know, you, you're upper class then it's, you know, you, you see a lot of kind of femininity and it's really weird living in London that I see a lot of, you know, men and I'm like, wait, they're straight like yeah they're straight you know they they and they're very feminine um but where i came from i think my femininity was was not allowed to be you know it was me and my brother we've had these conversations before which have been very very you know intrusive and like also confronting like how you know we feel we could be around a friend's child for example you know if we seen someone who had a baby we'd just go yeah yeah cute baby you know cute baby yeah nice Mm -hmm. but when I was you know a woman I oh my god she's beautiful I'd be able to pick the baby up Mm -hmm. and I'd connect with the baby and I would able to show a sense of love to that baby and I could do that as as a woman you know I felt like I could I could tap into that into that part of me but as a man it's weird you know it's quite creepy like if a man is acting like that around kid you know it's it's a bit creepy so Um, there's this there's this sense of I don't even know what the word to use is but it's it's ingrained into my brain that it's wrong you know that is it's wrong to connect on on that level it's wrong to connect with emotions on such a level now the kind of life that I grew up in, you know, we got kisses and I love you's on um, birthdays and Christmases. That was all, you know, we didn't get any other type of affection. So we were never really shown what that was. Um, so we had no concept of what, it, of, of what, you know, positive love was or, you know, um, healthy love or healthy support. You know, we never really knew what that was. Um, so when I detransitioned, I was able to understand this sense of feminine and masculine, and not from the sense of what we're taught, you know, in in the world around us. That you know, being feminine is you know, long hair and nice nails mm. and all of that. Like there's a deeper level of what femininity is. You know, it's the care and it's the it's the the holding of of things together and it's the you know the creator. And then the masculine is like, is the structure, is the go-getter, is, is, you know, is the worker. So it was like, okay, how do I piece them together rather than it being what society is telling me it is? And I was able to find balance in myself. Now, I'll be super honest with you. You know, I think since my detransition, my 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 kind of energy has gone, woof, it's whacked to like super masculine to, to an extent where... I can be quite hard in this world, and you know, I, I I find it quite difficult to soften up. Like that, for me, is still a work in progress. Like where I have to learn how to tap back into the feminine, and you know, be a loving partner, and you know, be loving to my to my boyfriend, and be loving to my mom, and you know, not come from that place of normal love, of which, which I know is you know is the reactor, is is the is the harshness. You know, I, I've got to learn how to to lean into that
0: and you came from like where a world where like men were men and women were women it was very old-fashioned in a way very kind of stereotypical as far as i can see a lot of love (laughs) a lot a lot of alcohol as well and a kind of a message of alcohol is fun and you, you you would have been a natural funster. You were always going to be the one who was, yeah, it, yeah. it <laughs> seems that was in you. Like your brother, you were saying, was upstairs, like tapping on the thing, telling them all to keep quiet. When you were like, let me down to join my mammy and her friends. <laughs> that really stuck in my mind as, isn't it funny? Two siblings can have such different responses. And you really did. You were like a little boy, like, let me at, at it. And you didn't stop that 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 kind of maintained really
2: it did this level of uh you know of partying you know addiction runs in our family you know my grandmother died of of alcoholism My my grandmother's sister is you know like 45 47 years sober so it's always you know i've I've noticed now like doing the trial and, and the research you know the addiction in the family and my brother is very much like against it like he's you know he doesn't drink he's kind of very like you know, anti-drinking. He hates my mum when she drinks, and it's it's very much it's very much like that. But for me, I was you know I was that kid in in a in a candy shop. You know, I'd pretend I was dancing around with you know the the kind of cider as you know the five year old and you know people were clapping for me, and you know I, it was that it was it was that environment that I was in. You know, I think I was like seven, and you know my, I think my stepdad or someone gave me a cigarette, like to say you know try it, and you know we ch- we tried it and we choked on it and. You know, so it was, I was very much surrounded with that and I was so attracted, you know, to this sense of of partying and and what it looked like. And I think it's really important to touch on. I was the shy kid, though, at times. I, I, I think I've always had that sense of anxiety and I've always had this sense of not fully feeling like I fit in. So when we would go to, you know, either family functions or like parties, you know, I remember my mum would give us a shandy. Now, if anyone doesn't know what a shandy is, it's half a lager and lemonade. Um, so, you know, all, all the kids had it back then. You know, it's, I mean, if they'd done it nowadays, then and, um, social <laughs> services would be straight there. But back in the day, you know, it was the mums would, you know, have a little shandy and it would perk me up and I would mm. be able to dance on the dance floor with the other kids. And, and I mean, I was like, eight or nine you know I was I was young you know I was a young kid but that for me was was okay this is I think that was the beginning in my mind Mm. of that escapism and of that connecting like this I need Mm. something to connect
0: and you were also taught it just to jump in you were taught it really from the beginning because your mother was going out that was the fun time she worked very hard it was quite a Mm. you know difficult life but there was fun And that was Saturday night, like you said, that song Saturday night, and I remember it, <laughs> and you know that that was the fun, so you were kind of it was it was very much just it was taught to you this is the fun part of life, mm. and you know you, you were receptive to it and i want I want to come back to that in a few minutes, but you go ahead, sasha, because it looks like you have something
1: yeah, you know it, we're we're referring by the way to Calvin's new podcast, where he kind of talks about. If episode one is about hitting rock bottom and episode two is about the childhood and Very one thing recognized. that really stood out yeah it's really great we'll really include good. it in the notes but one thing that stood out to me is you at one point you say you know i wasn't just dancing a little i was dancing until sweat was dripping off my body as a kid yeah. and i i want to just talk about there's so many things here i'm thinking about dance as this natural thing that some people are drawn to and coming from the dance world I know so many gay men who are so beyond exceptional in dance and it's so trained but also so organic and natural and it brings up this question for me which we hear a lot about in certain circles about kids who dance and kids in drag and the drag world and I think this is really an important topic because it can get either too glorified on one side as though there's no harm done whatsoever, but the other side also, I think, misunderstands the performance aspect. And like, at what age do young people get drawn to performance? And is that something imposed on them by their parents? Or is that natural? And what is age appropriate for a kid who just is passionate about dance? Like, so can, can you just talk a little bit about your experience with dance and performance because that obviously played a role for you probably yeah. in positive and negative ways in terms of like wearing a
2: mask right so yeah I i'm glad <laughs> <laughs> no 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 it's it's great because i'm glad that you brought that up because i've never actually been asked that question before and you know i i always like from the moment i walked i danced you know that was it was in my body to dance i was obsessed with michael jackson janet jackson like i would copy everything like I would create a stage, you know, I would get the kids from the streets and I'd make them all sit on the step and they'd watch me perform and, you know, I I was very much the performer and I loved to dance. Now, obviously, my mum comes from, you know, the kind of some of the rave scene in, in the 90s and, you know, Liverpool was very much known for its its club scene and the rave scene back then. And, you know, I heard a lot of that music and, you know, I'd see videos that she'd, you know, bring back on the nightclubs um, on the VHS. And I'd watch people dancing and sweating in the clubs. and You know, I was, you know, I, I, I used to pretend I was there and, you know, it. We'd have like parties sometimes in the house and, you know, it sometimes turned into, you know, a bit of kind of the radio would be turned on and it'd be club music and I would just like be dancing and you know, I'd have a whistle with a rave. Now that part for me was just I think it was just letting loose and letting go. Now as a performative side of things, you know, I was very much the kid that loved the Spice Girls and Steps and you know, I very much thought I was, you know, one of one of the one of the pop stars and I I remember once watching, this is gonna sound quite cringe, I remember once watching the Backstreet Boys on the TV and just sitting there crying as I watched them and like being, I want to be them, I just want (laughs) to be a pop star, you know? But, um, (laughs) God help me, I couldn't sing. Um, Uh, What sort of age were you? Were you a teenager I was, I, no, 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 I was definitely like around like six, like, you know, around six, at the age of six. but, you know, I touched on this story in, in my podcast, which was, there was a moment when, you know, my stepdad moved in when I was around the age of six, you know, we'd never really had a man in the house because my dad left at a young age. So my mum, my mum really kind of allowed me to to do whatever I wanted to do within reason, you know, um, mm-hmm. if I wanted to put on her Madonna comb bra and run up and down the street, she'd let me do it, you know, she, it, it was very fun. And. You know, we, we joke about it now that my mum says, you know, I was the first one that put put you in drag. But she just allowed me to do it with such innocence. And it was never with a label or with, yeah. with anything behind it. It was just a child playing dress up, you know? Yeah. And then my stepdad moved in and I'd never been around such a masculine, masculine energy before and you know we were at one of these parties one night and i was dancing in the living room and i was just dancing away and i was enjoying myself just being this free child just carefree about the world and i remember he began to laugh and like This was my first ever feeling of shame and, you know, when I've done the work that I've done on myself, I've had to really go back Mm. into my life and go, where was the first moment of shame? And I believe that this was one of the first moments of shame for me, that they laughed at me and I didn't understand why they were Mm. laughing. And then, you know, the, the the boys joined in and then, you know, they began to get a little bit older then. So they can kind of notice what's a bit girly or what's a bit feminine or what's a bit gay. You know, so it, it, they kind of started to catch up onto that. I, you know, I remember in that moment, I just carried on. You know, my mum's famous words were always just ignore them, just ignore them. Mm. I don't think she knew how to hold it. But also throughout my whole life, you know, I, I have so much love for my mum and she's always felt like the in-between, like she just, you know, she always feels like she's doing wrong or she, you know, she's always doing, she just doesn't know where she's at. And I, and I get that, you know, as an adult, I understand that because you have a partner that you love and you have a child that you love and you just can't please everyone. And, um, from that moment, my, my dancing became very secretive. I, I stopped dancing. Um, I would lock the bedroom door and I'd put music on and, I'd listen and I'd hear footsteps and I'd I'd hide it away. Um, So I stopped, you know, I I kind of stopped dancing and I only began to train as a dancer at the age of 15. Now, this is something that I've not fully expressed and shared and I think it's important that I do share because it's a part of, you know, where my life kind of took a U-turn, I believe. Now, I wasn't the most academic in school. I was not able to to learn in school. I think my energy was focused on just surviving in school and just kind of getting through and keeping my head down. So I didn't have the capacity to learn. So I was taken out of school and I was put into a a program on a Friday where I would go to a dance school and, you know, that would be part of my education. Now the dance teacher. So I entered this dance school at the age of fifteen, and I believe the dance teacher at the time was probably around thirty-two, thirty-three. And I always remember, you know, seeing this glare in his eyes of like, yeah, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what that glare was, but you know, it was, it was quite flirtatious, uh, I'd say. And you know, I'm this obviously this young fifteen-year-old kid that's kind of realizing that he's gay, and you know this is a good looking guy and you know. So I'd carried on dancing at this place and then um, my dancing progressed and I got better at what I'd done and then I joined the company, you know, I got an, an offer to, to join the company. And as time went on, this guy, um, I call it grooming to be honest with you, this guy began to take advantage of his power that he had, um, he kissed me at times. Um, there was times when we had done shows and we drank, and you know, I I was in blackouts and I'd wake up the next morning being with this person and like not knowing what had happened. I'm am like seventeen at this age now, you know, so I am of legal age. But and what sort you know, of age this, was he? At this point Roughly. now, I'm guessing he was around about 30, 34. So. To me, it was very kind of like, you know, you you have this person that's really above you and, you know, he's kind of your boss. So you kind of feel like this is what you have to do and you go along with it. Um, And around the age of 18, I kind of said enough was enough. You know, I was just like, this person has a partner. Um, I'm noticing now that he's doing it with other guys that are now joining the company. Um, I'm not the only one. Um, and that's when I began to find the nightclubs, and I began to find you know the gay clubs, and I began dancing in the day, in the gay clubs, and then it became it became drag, after that, and. Something that I will I will pick up on because, you know, I speak about it in the podcast, which was an identity that I took on, which was, you know, this kind of ghetto kid, this kind of American basketball player. Like, I brought that into my dance. So my dancing at the time was very kind of masculine, very hip-hop based. You know, I, the girls fancied me, you know, whenever I danced, like, girls were really attracted to me because they thought I was straight when I was dancing. Dance allowed me to tap back into my femininity. And when I danced feminine, I always remember being told not to do that. You're never going to get hired. Um, you're never going to get hired dancing the way that you do. It's not attractive. It doesn't look good. What are you doing? And it was this sense of like, okay, so there definitely is something wrong with me. And because you told me that what I'm doing is wrong, then I'm going to take it even further and put it on a wig and put on heels and do everything else that you're telling me that is wrong. And I'm going to, you know, I'm going to show you exactly what I can do, you know? And that's how I... You know progressed into my femininity by becoming a drag performer
1: okay, can I ask well, there's a lot of things it's almost <laughs> like you have this pendulum swinging where like yeah 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 moments you're embracing femininity then you go the opposite direction, mm-hmm. then someone pushes you back and it's like this constant it feels like such a like a confusing experience first of all I mean that's interesting and just like who the heck told you that's the worst advice I've ever heard for yeah. a professional dancer? Have they never seen like Janet Jackson on tour? Or, like, I mean, <laughs> what are they talking about? That's every single successful dancer almost invariably has a lot of beauty and femininity in the room. Yeah. So that's insane advice. Who who's, who's the crazy person who said that to you?
0: <laughs> and did you did you have male dancing you and female dancing you? Like, was there two different? Yeah.
2: It was, and I think you know, maybe Sasha, you can you can relate to this because I think as a dancer, you know, you you're just basically a vessel for that choreography. You know, whatever you're told to do, you can tap into it. And I think, you know, dancing allowed me to express my anger, express my love, so it allowed me to express whatever emotions that were happening to me in that in that moment. And you know, I was very good at listening to other people and being told kind of what to do and how to be. You know, because everyone's telling me how to be so it was like okay this is how I dance in this role um but you know when I put on the wig and you know when I kind of te- stepped into the drag side of things it, it was like a complete different person it was like a complete different persona in how I walked how I moved how I mm. spoke um it, it was like a full switch
1: it's funny you say that because I was thinking a little bit about in my experience with dance when you are in a class or in a troupe and someone teaches you a choreography, you really are a vessel. But then solo performance, which is like my preference, you are inventing it yourself. You're letting the music speak to you. You're not following any pre-written choreography. So I I find that drag probably has similar elements. It's it's an improvisational to some degree. It's a solo performance. The spotlight is on you. So what was it like when you started to do drag because you said this was a very different world so talk more about that
2: drag was like the first mask that i put on you know i think dealing with a lot of shame of my sexuality more than anything you know i i not I recently came out to my mom, and you know her response to my coming out was just don't be sleeping with anyone. Do what you want, but just don't be sleeping around. So there was a there was a moment of me feeling like okay, this is it. It definitely is wrong. You know th- this. My sexuality is is wrong. Now, doing the, doing drag allowed me to be as gay and to be as loud as I possibly could through this mask, and you know. It, that was also fueled with a whole cocktail of drugs as well. Yeah. You know, I, yeah. I had never, ever done drag sober. I'd never put on a wig sober. It,
0: it often feels to me that the drag scene in general is fueled by a, a cocktail of drugs and drink. It feels very drinky-druggy.
2: Yeah, it is, you know, and I think that's... it's. I See, I've always said, and the reason why I don't do drag anymore is because I've always said that it's 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 a place where you get to learn yourself and and learn to express yourself. And once it's done, it's done, you know, but nowadays kids just do drag because they, you know, aren't that great at dancing. So they want to, you know, get on a stage and perform in a wig or they're really good at doing makeup. So, you know, now that I can do a a smoky eye and put on an eyelash, I'm going (laughs) to become a drag queen because it's trendy and it's, you know, it's it's super cool. It's so much easier than being
1: a real dancer.
2: Yeah, of course,
0: you know, like, <laughs> you <yeah>. two bitches. <laughs> it's so I, but you're right. i never <laughs> thought of it as a non-dancer. I'd never thought of it. I get it, because to be a really good dancer without being a drag artist, you'd want to be shit hot. Like to to, to yeah. be. Yeah, yeah. I just realised that. Yeah, that's so funny. Um, can you was death drop? I to... Sorry,
1: I just have to ask. Do you yeah. can you death drop?
2: I would rather throw myself in front of a tube than <laughs> even try to death drop. I'll be uh, honest with you. Like what's de- my, my, my... What's death drop. What's death oh. drop? <laughs> really, throw a leg up in the air and like completely just drop down to the floor, like that. That's going to give people bad back. It looks like, like you know, are I already dropped... spent a lot on chiropractor.
1: Yeah, it looks like you were dropped out of an airplane and you like landed in this weird position. But like people will spin, spin, spin and then drop into this crazy position. We'll have to throw a YouTube video. Can
0: can you death drop, Sasha?
1: No, that's not part (laughs) of our dance form at all. No. (laughs) I never. Okay, so so I mean, in a serious note, I think what you're saying is that in a way you were able to kind of concentrate your sense of femininity, but in this exaggerated way that was also fueled by a lot of drugs and alcohol. So this is not necessarily a healthy self-expression, but it was like a powerful taste of like everything you'd repressed. And then you said once you're done with it, you're done with it. So like at what point did you leave drag and then what happened next? Mm -hmm.
2: Well, you know, I I started drag at the age of 18 and my drag career, you know, it took off and, you know, I, I was, you know, the most beautiful in Liverpool, but um, well, that's not the most beautiful. I, I had the most nicest teeth out of drag queens. Like drag queens, you know, <laughs> back you in the day, day didn't did have very sure, really so good teeth beautiful. back then. <laughs> 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 but um, so I, it was around the age of 24, I was on a reality TV show on um, MTV and they really kind of like harnessed in on my drag at the time. Um, I, could, I I loved I loved to, I loved performing. I I loved who I was. But then when I got onto the onto the show, they kind of they wanted me to get in drag at certain times, and they wanted me to do this and they wanted me to do that, and I kind of. I just kind of began to fall out of love with it. But actually, when I look back on it, it's not that I was falling out of love with it. I just didn't have a line of cocaine to go with it, you know, because wow. I'd never done drag sober before. So it was very uncomfortable that they were wanting me to go on like these, you know, on these jobs and do and wow. do makeup at these places and, and put me into these situations to do drag. And I had no vice to, to take it with me. And it was you know it was very uncomfortable and you know that's when I believed I had fell out of out of love with with drag so but,
0: but uh, ba- maybe you just couldn't really do drag sober
2: no I couldn't I I, I I just I didn't know how to I didn't know how to be feminine or to to allow myself to be gay without without being drunk. You know, anything to do with being... Go ahead, Sash. That's so This
1: reminds me a little bit of, like, sometimes I've heard women who are strippers talk about this. Like, you can't yeah. actually strip without being really fucked up. Totally. You know, is there something similar, do you think, about that? I mean, this is very interesting, because on one hand, you're like, well, I hadn't expressed myself in so long, but then you're like, well, I couldn't actually... I didn't know how to do it unless I was really messed up on drugs or alcohol
2: yeah I think because I had to mingle and I had to be this persona and you know it, it was an act of more than anything, you know, being doing drag was an act more than anything. And um happened to to mingle and, and be around other people. I just didn't know how to do that. and I think more than anything, I was afraid. I was I was scared because doing drag. It always opened up an opportunity for men to kind of come onto me. And it, yeah. it was, you know, especially straight men, you know, it allowed men to kind of come onto me. And I just wouldn't know what to do in that capacity. But, you know, I, I done drag, you know, we'll get to this part. But when I picked up drag again, when I was 27, 20, I think, no, sorry, I was 28, 29, when I started doing drag again here in London. But I'd done that sober you know mm. so I was able to do it sober but the difference was I had boundaries my you know my sobriety allowed me to get onto a stage and perform and then get off the stage and take yeah. off the eyelashes and and to, oh, and I see. to yeah. leave as Calvin yeah. where back in the day it was fueled with with the alcohol because I just wanted to stay it as as that person because I just didn't want to come back to being Calvin
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of our podcast. We work very hard to maintain high quality content for the show. To take an even deeper
1: dive and support the show, join our listener community for access to exclusive content, practical tools and resources supporting gender and identity exploration. We're so grateful to our sponsor, Genspect, an international organization which offers an alternative to WPATH. Providing a range of education, resources, and supports to anyone impacted by gender distress, Genspect unites many different organizations globally and gives voice to thousands of previously untold
0: stories. For more info, visit genspect.org. And thank you to our sponsor, Rhyme. Rethink Identity Medicine Ethics is a nonprofit organization Dedicated to improving long-term care for gender variant individuals. Visit rethinkime.org to learn more. And now back to the
1: conversation.
0: And uh, yeah. to- talking about that earlier on, I, I was I was kind of I saw how kind of drink had been kind of almost sold to you as a kid as the, the way forward for happiness and fun, and you bought it. And it made me think you might be a little bit impressionable as a kid, and lots of us are. And then I thought, you know, if ever there was a culture-bound syndrome, it feels like trans is at the moment, and it feels in other generations you would have been a, a gay man, ah, uh, uh, certainly a drag artist, but not necessarily trans. And it felt like it was it was in the water as such f- for you, that it was it was culturally there, just like drink was there, culturally. Trans was there because it felt feels like a leap when I when I heard about your life. I thought you you were just to me the quintessential gay man club scene. Yeah, you were, you know, you had a weakness around drinking drugs or you know, that was certainly an issue, but the leap over to trans feels very very influenced by the era mm. that you were living in. And I think, yeah. am I right in thinking you transitioned? You, you know what I mean? It feels like a leap that wouldn't have happened in 1994. And it happened in, if I'm right, 2014, where it was, is it, was it around about then? When did you yeah, transition?
2: 2015,
0: yeah. Yeah. How old That it was you? just... So yeah. I was twenty
2: five, just turned.
0: So could you tell us that jump? Because you were you were a gay man who was who was a drag queen. You had it all going on. Like you were metrosexual, and you had you were very. You looked like you were very comfortable with your femininity. And there's a funny story about you
2: told your mother you just want boobs. Tell us all that. <laughs> it's really interesting that you said that because being impressionable and being at a place where you know the show had flopped. We'd been sold this big promise that, oh, you know, this was MTV it. Life, the MTV show. The MTV yeah. show had flopped. Like, life was going to be made for you. You guys didn't have to work anymore. Like, you know, it, this is it. You know, this is it. And it wasn't. So that, for me, was, like, a, lo- a really low point in my life because I thought this was my break. You know, this was, this was my way into being fully accepted for who I was. And, you know, I... I began getting gifts from companies that you know were saying, "Would you like some Botox for free?" You know, just kind of promote us and you know, it'll be good for your drag. It'll be good for your drag aesthetic. Okay, so I began kind of like dabbling in in that world, and then you know, as a it was kind very of a social
0: like, media influencer, you were starting. Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So as like as, you know, as a, as a blogger at this time, like being online, and you know, I noticed that when I got because I was no longer working in the nightclubs anymore because I, I, I believe that I was too good to work in the nightclubs. You know, I'd just kind of <laughs> do these spots when I get booked to do this or, you know, I'd just dress up in the house and I'd just show people, you know, what I looked like. And um. I noticed that people were interested in me more when I was dressed in, in, in feminine yeah. clothes. And, you know, I then began to kind of, Find myself in the world online of um, of the trans community, and I began seeing, you know, how people were doing what they would do. And I began watching videos on on YouTube um, of their feelings and emotions around things. Um, I began hanging out with a lot of trans girls, and you know, at the time, I was not working. I didn't have any money. I was living at my mum's house and oh gosh, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, I'm going to say, gosh. Um, I began webcamming, you know? Mm. So that was something that I fell into. Um, I was never, re- I was never sexual with people in person. And I think this whole kind of camera and this world of social media and the computer became a, a kind of a place away from from me and I began to create this identity based on what I was seeing through a computer screen. And what I noticed was, you know, I a lot of the clients that I got as, you know, a, a webcam model or whatever you want to call it, were straight men, you know, and they were paying me attention and they were giving me money and, you know, they, they wanted me. Um, And then obviously watching these girls on YouTube and watching their stories and, you know, I was at a place where I didn't fully know where I was and I didn't fancy gay men. Like, I couldn't look at another gay man and go, you, you, I'm attracted to you. I feel attracted to you because there was nothing attractive about a gay man. Like, I just couldn't, I I couldn't. Um, But straight men was was the on for me and it Mm -hmm. was you know that's that's where i want to be with but what i noticed is they wanted me for you know a a fun time and not a long time and that for me kept on i kept on tripping up at that place because i think all i ever wanted was 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 love and and to be loved now i'm glad that when it comes to the online webcam and you know, I have some sort of conscience and and I'm able to, I've been able to tap into that throughout my whole life, which is what my boundaries are and what my values are. And, you know, I remember sitting at home once and I was meditating and it kind of came to me, which was, what am I putting my energy into? I'm allowing myself to be on a camera, strip for these guys who probably have a wife and kids at home. I don't know what their financial, you know, what their financial finances are, you know, I could be taken from these kids and I could be taken from a wife and that for me just doesn't sit right in order just to pay for, for hormones, you know, um, and I start, you know, and I stopped doing it. Um, yeah, and, but it trickled because my addictive personality became so focused on this transition that. the the drugs and the alcohol kind of subsided like that wasn't really much of an issue at this point now because my whole energy had gone into how do I transition and it was just every single aspect of my life was around trans um situations and trans um just everything to do with trans like whether it was activism whether it was going into schools and universities talking about it posting about it constantly you know kind of making myself out to be this victim that was hard done by and that my life was hard and you know it's i became an echo chamber
1: this kind of you didn't, um, reinforces uh, oh sorry stella you talk about this a lot the way trans can okay. become like an addiction so, so yeah go ahead
0: well, well there was one piece that, uh, in that and it was fascinating and i actually think Trans women and webcams is is a big thing that isn't talked about. I think uh, uh, it's it's a huge source of of everything. I I don't know validation and and vanity and sex and everything and money. I don't know, but everything seems to be there. I think I think it's a big story that hasn't been explored. So that, that's one thing that I, I I kind of I thank you for for bringing it up. But the second point was. I didn't hear when you jumped over because, mm-hmm. y- yeah, you you, you you were gay and there was a devastating, as far as I could see, loss, which is common for people who get a fixation upon trans. This kind of a big loss in their life happens and they're flailing and they're looking for a solution. And you, you just didn't say that jump that, you know what I mean? That you, you, you had had a devastating loss. I could imagine you were going to be huge. MTV was going to be brilliant. <laughs> in fairness, I'd say it was devastating. I really would. <laughs> and, um, I'd imagine, you know, you were like kind of, you know, the, the, the big event in Liverpool, probably, you know, you know, the dancer. I could just see what you were and you're, you're so beautiful. I could imagine that it was, it was really hard not. To be the huge success that you were, you it sounds like you were really lots mm. You could have been a great success. There's no doubt about it with everything that you had going on. So I can see why there was a a flailing. But do you remember how and why you jumped over to trans? Because it still does seem a jump to me.
2: It, it happened quite. I'll be honest. It happened quite gradually because of okay. you know it went from like the Botox, then it went from you know the lip fillers, and then it went to the eyelashes, and I, oh. you know, it it it. It slowly happens and then it went from I really want to get extensions put on my hair and then this sense of me becoming very feminine and feminizing myself as a man. Now, you know, I remember having a conversation with Pete Burns back in the day over Twitter and he he was like, you remind me of myself you know pete burns you remind me of myself and can and i just tell age. Can i
0: just tell listeners pete burns <laughs> well do you do want to tell people what who pete burns is a very... is... yeah.
2: <laughs> good he he's the scouse and you know he's the guy that sings um you spin me right round isn't it oh um, yeah Dead or, Dead or oh yeah he's so yes. cool he's vulgar he was a vulgar man but just such a great guy that just came out with it um <laughs> And I loved it. He was like, you remind me of myself when I was a teenager, you know, I just didn't care. I'm a man and this is what I look like. And if you don't like it, then, you know, F off. And I was very much in that kind of Mm. place where it was like, I'm a man. I know exactly who I am. I wear wigs. I, you know, I wear eyelashes. I wear makeup. And, you know, I even done this whole you know, thing for the Tate with, with Andy Warhol exhibition, which was, you know, men wearing makeup and, you know, this whole big activist thing of, you know, we should allow it to be more. And then I, like I mentioned, you know, I began to be around more trans women and trans girls and began to kind of fixate onto it online. So for me, it was this, it, I was spending a lot of my own time at home, like, constantly on YouTube and constantly going through the feeds and, and watching other people and identifying with this sense of, you know, this is how I felt as a child. I felt very isolated, never felt a part of, blah, blah. You know, all, all of the tick boxes, I, I identified with that. And, you know, I spoke with um, a friend of mine and I said, this is, you know, I think, I think I might be trans and she laughed at me. You know, she was just like, I don't, I don't think she was like, you know, I don't think you are. And um, I, you know, I don't really want to mention here, but right now she's going through a whole, I don't know what she's going through, but her child has came out as trans and is now, you know, transitioning from female to male. And we don't really, we're not really in contact as much anymore. But I um, mean, you know, she, she was like, I don't think you are. And I kind of went ahead and it was just like, this is the idea. This is what I want. You know, uh, it was. Uh,
0: and say how, when you went to your mother, I love that story.
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I will, I will get to that. But it was like, this is exactly what I want. And, you know, I remember I was blogging at the time and a lot of my life was shared with, with the world and I put a camera in the bedroom and I'd, and I'd hid it. And, um, you know, you can go watch it on YouTube and, you know, I sat my mum down and I gave her this letter and, and yeah, my mum's dyslexic as they call me, you know, she she didn't read anything. She didn't really even like look at the paper, she just kind of like, you know, well, what is it? What are you what do you showing you know, what do you with me? And I said, um, I've been to see a doctor. And she was like, Yeah, and she, you know, well what, what what's the problem? I said, I want boobs. And her response was, Well what the fuck are boobs gonna do for you? You know, it was super <laughs> plain and simple. What the fuck a boob's gonna do for you? Because they're not gonna make you happy, and it's really interesting because if you really listen to that video as she goes down the stairs, I it, we just it just switches. Like, is it nothing was ever said? And I say, what's for dinner? And she goes, <laughs> fuck all, Cinderella, and she just she just carries on walking down the stairs, you know, and. <laughs> it was like brushed into the carpet we're not going to talk about it now
0: there's something so Liverpool what the fuck that boy was going to do for you <laughs> it just made me giggle all day yesterday um, I, I, I suppose I think another thing that isn't explored as much and I, I kind of think you're touching on it and Pete Burns is a very good example of it, Pete Burns you know he did that amazing single and he was an amazing person and then he he fell into kind of extraordinary, extreme um, cosmetic surgery addiction, as far as I could see, and he died early, and it was very tragic. Mm-hmm. That's how I I saw him. So if somebody said to me, "I see you as a kid," if Pete Burns had said that to me, it would have given me the fear, like <laughs> oh god, <laughs> because he 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 had so many cosmetic surgeries, he, he lost himself completely, like he, he he was unrecognizable. And I I I wonder, I believe that. Vanity and anxiety are, are are very connected and I think vanity mm-hmm. can be a manifestation of anxiety and I don't think it's spoken about enough. It's almost like it's taboo to talk about vanity and I, I think it's just very often a manifestation of anxiety and maybe we should speak about it a little bit more so that people could understand that you can drive really quite a lot of of, of decisions that can be that can be a a, a distraction from yourself. And I wondered that for yourself.
2: Yeah, I think if, you know, I fixated on part of my body and that created anxiety. You know, I was able to, as I began, you know, going through my transition, I studied women's faces and I noticed that, you know, your faces are much rounder than mine. Like, why isn't mine like that? So then it created this sense of, you know, there's something wrong with me. Why is your nose like this and my nose isn't like that? And, you know, and I think it became this self-obsession, you know, it it is a self-obsession when you're so stuck in self that you begin to think that there's something wrong with you, that you then need to change it. And I posted about this actually yesterday on Instagram. And I think, you know, for people that are listening and that may not be trans or have never, you know, dealt with gender dysphoria you know, I think, listen to the similarities and not the differences, because, you know, we, not even just trans people, but, you know, you see everyone now, and everyone's getting the lips pumped, and, you know, you know, a lot of people are getting these cheek fillers and constantly changing themselves, and it's like, we're all doing it on, on a collective, you know, we're all in this place where we all believe that, not all, okay, you know, not everyone, but, you know, a lot of people are believing that there is something wrong with us, and, you know, I think it's really interesting that when I sit back and actually watch the world around me and see how much we've really normalized anxieties, depression, and, you know, these, how, how we choose to look at ourselves and, you know, this normalization of, well, if it's, if, if you think there's something wrong with it, then go change it and get your lips plumped, you know, or go get the boobs put in or go get the gender reassignment. Yeah. And it's this, like, we'll fix it for you. But there's a lot of other stuff that's going on in the mind that needs to be addressed first.
1: And it's interesting because it's like at the same time that we're, we're hearing much more about like beauty standards and, you know, healthy at every size and, you know, all of this like attempt to flatten what beauty is. I find myself really in conflict here because it's like on one hand, the pursuit of the beautiful is something that is really ancient and old. And yet you're totally right, Stella, in that vanity can mix in with all of this, like, you know, medical technology. And like, where does the line get drawn? Because I think people crave the pursuit of beautiful things for the sake of beauty. But like how that gets manifested is really interesting. I mean, I don't know where to go with that. It's just it's such a weird time. You know, when we're trying to say, well, beauty's in the eye of the beholder and there's no such thing as actual beauty. And on the other hand, everyone's going to extreme cosmetic lengths to build this weird ideal of like really what looks like like extreme cosmetic
0: interventions. It's weird. And for, for yourself, Calvin, it sounds like, I, you know, the odyssey to, to Thailand was very interesting where you, you were just chasing, chasing, chasing as if you were one day going to reach this Zen place where you could just be. And it was like this 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 incredible kind of um, pressure. I felt that you were you were trying so hard to be a kind of a pure soul, a beautiful soul um a, a kind of a, a good person who would just kind of maybe meditate and maybe yoga and eat pure food and be a good presence and then maybe like I said earlier like six o'clock rolled around and you got a, a taste of a beer and went ah. Oh. And this this yeah. party animal came out, and that that kind of Jekyll and Hyde. It was like the picture of Dorian Gray. It reminded me of like you know this this party animal came out at night, and then back in the morning, you know <laughs> the, the Zen, <laughs> the meditation, purity will come back in. And it it reminds me of almost you know from the pa- Catholic upbringing, like that would be very you know Irish Catholic. You know you're there praying away and then at Mm -hmm. night like where's the whiskey (laughs) (laughs) the next day praying and it's the it's the same thing it's just a new a new cultural invention of it and for yourself you were chasing that purity as if there had been sold to you this idea that there's a zen place that we humans can reach which is Mm -hmm. quite relaxed and quite at ease with themselves and honestly you know angst is the human condition there's an awful like we wake up and we worry about this we worry about that and our brains are going and it was like you had almost been sold that there is this person who can be relaxed and you wanted that person desperately wanted them
2: do you know what i think really I, i think it's important like so when i was 10 right i i flew to california by myself to stay with my auntie and this was my my, my grandmother's sister. Um, and, you know, she, she was sober. She'd been sober, you know, 20 odd years when I'd got there when I was 10. Now, this kid coming from the streets of Liverpool, going to, you know, the Wine Valleys in California with this 70-year-old hippie and all of her hippie friends. You know, she taught me meditation when I was 10. And, oh. you know, she allowed me to connect into spirituality and it was really interesting because now when we look back you know she she spoke to me in the language of of recovery back then and she taught me a lot of things and I remember tapping into something where she allowed me to really tap into me as a person and she showed me what love was you know she showed me what it was to be loved as as a child and to be held as a child and to know what boundaries were and and then the people around me you know i i I noticed that these these families they loved their children and they cared for their children, and you know they they fed them good food and you know they they looked after them and they took them places and when i I remember i, I remember coming back home, I was there for six weeks, and I remember coming back home to the airport and I had like this little fake earring in that my auntie put in my ear, and you know I was so excited to get home and show my mom. And, you know, my mum turned up at the airport with my stepdad in the back of the seat and she was hungover and she was vomiting. And, you know, that's what I turned up back to. And I think I'd always chased that. I think that was always the thing, which was because I'd been shown a different way of life. You know, I was taught that this is where this is the way we live in Liverpool. We work hard and we party hard. Mm. And, you know, we don't talk about feelings. We put it all under the carpet. We've got no time for that this is what we do and I was then shown this other part of life which was this gentle this kind of more calm and this way of being and you know whenever I'd you know I've been back and forth to California you know eight times and I have always been chasing that 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 moment and I've always been chasing Ah. like that's that sense of serenity that I had when I was there and that sense of peace Um, but I think as I've got older and I've gone back there when I'm older and you know, it's, it's never, it's never actually materialized of, you know, what it played out to be in my mind. You kind of get to notice that, you know, my auntie's just as crazy as me, but she just (laughs) meditates, you know? Um, yeah. yeah.
1: Oh, it's an amazing story. And I'm, I'm so grateful that you've shared some of it with us. Um, identity formation and, 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 Understanding oneself is a long journey, and I mean, you—you you started transitioning at 25. At what age did you detransition? Just to give us a timeline.
2: 27 was when I began detransitioning.
1: Okay. So yeah. I mean, this this also touches on this idea that people have, which is like, if somebody is over 18, then they know exactly what they're doing. Yeah. They've obviously, got the maturity to know exactly what transition means. And your story, like Richie's, like many others. Is a demonstration that you know being at war with ourselves can happen at any age, yeah. and um, it's really especially for spe- to especially,
0: especially in our twenties where we, yeah. as you said, <laughs> we go nuts. we go whoa! We go <laughs> we go everywhere. We flail during our twenties, and mm-hmm. uh,
2: most people do. Yeah, you, you know, your twenties is a place to experience and to to allow yourself to be in the mess. I think that's the most important thing. And I think that's the thing that I've learned, which is to allow yourself to be so fluidid, fluid uh, f- fluid. with your 20s, make the mistakes, figure out who you are. Yeah. You know, and we're still on this, we're always on this journey of figuring out who, who we are. And, you know, I think what happens now is that we have became so attached to, to labels that then create us as, this is how we should be, you know. I I ate vegan for eight years, and I never call myself a vegan because, you know, that what I eat does not make me, an I is not. I'm not mm-hmm. an identity of the the things that I eat, you know. And I think that's super important because once we start doing that, we we block ourselves off, you know, of of so many other things in our lives. And I think when I took on that label of I am now trans, it it stopped me from doing so many things in my life, and it it. it it made me be a person that everyone outside is against me. You know, it, it made me become this person where I had to learn how to put on armor. I had to learn how to, you know, suit myself up before I go out into the big wild world because it's dangerous and this can happen to me and that can happen to me. And I spent so much time and energy worrying about that. And, you know, I, I'd come home and, I, and I'd get into bed and, you know, I'd take off my bra, which, you know, I didn't have boobs, so I don't know why I was wearing a bra, but that's another story. But, you know, I'd get into bed and and I would lie there and i go, I'm tired. And i go, why am I tired? I'm like, because I'm tired of being, I'm tired of just constantly feeling like I'm having to fight and fight and fight. And, you know, the moment I detransitioned, life just felt very calm. The world around me became such a nicer place. You know, I didn't see myself as as this victim anymore. I didn't see myself as the whole world was against me. I was able to really tap into to me. You know, I was able to tap into, you know, not this sense of having boobs are going to make me happy or having, you know, the lips are going to make me happy. I had to really figure that out on the inside and to really reel that back in because, you know, people can agree with this or not, but, you know, I just don't think in in... As a whole, you know, the medical industry is never fully going to cure everyone. And I think when we're we're teaching people that, you know, if you feel this way, that the medical industry is going to cure you and it's going to help you feel better. And I had to go as far back, you know, when people talk about, you know, trans people have always been here. You know, we've always been here. We've been here for thousands of years. Yeah, we've all, you know, they've always been here for thousands of years, but they were not mutilating their body and they weren't changing their body they, they, they loved their body, you know, they were able to be in that body and be in that sense of who they were. But we've now gotten to a place where we're pushing this thing of, well, if you feel this way, then we've got this cure for you and you can change your body and you can, you know, miraculously be the person that you've always wanted to be. And, you know, I, I, I fell into that kind of trap and believed that that was the way to be. And that just wasn't, that just wasn't the journey for me
0: and have you anything you would say to people who are maybe in that place that maybe they're maybe they're you know trans identified but they're finding that it's not solving what they thought it would solve and have you is there anything you would say to them
2: you know i'm working with someone at the moment that's at that place at you know and the thing that i've always said to them which is to Shut the laptop down and and kind of close your ears a little bit and and figure out what's going on for you. Wow. Now you know I think when when we put a group of people together, we will know, sometimes notice that there is a there's a, a track history of you know an absent father or maybe a bit of abuse that has happened to them you know by Loss. a male or by a female or you know there's because for me it was the sense of the masculine is dangerous the masculine is going to hurt me it, you know it's it's hurt me before it always has and it always will so if that's in my mind which is the masculine is dangerous so i had to learn to become comfortable with that and to you know really rewire my whole brain as to what i believe was going to get me you know we live in this world where toxic masculinity is going to kill you and men are dangerous and men are bad and you know we we're, we're just pushing this constantly and you know, to so the advice that I give to anyone, which is, you know, you you, to, you have to go in and and stop trying to heal yourself through, through social media. You know, you stop using your, you know, what's on your mind, what Facebook says as actually what's on your mind, you know, speak to people, speak to professionals and be honest. I think that's the main important thing is be honest, because I had a tick list Of everything that I knew what to say when I went to see a gender specialist because I was taught all of this by trans women online and they're gonna ask you this question this is what you answer and you go in there already with a script and you say what you're gonna say because you already have in your mind what you want and you know I wasn't fully being honest with myself and also with you know the doctors and the professionals
1: that's really Uh, good advice because so many people feel like they are going in with a goal um i know we'll we'll have to wrap it here but Stella, stella do you have another thought
0: just one last thing you you had a therapist sorry 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 you had a therapist and the therapist um said that they were basically felt that they were bound by law not to ask you oh
1: yeah
0: and yeah uh, have you anything to say to therapists who are thinking like that? Because you really could have done with people exploring. You really you were you were you you were very hurt by the whole. It sounds to me the whole trans experience. It sounded harrowing for you.
2: Yeah, and and you know, and I'm still working through it. And I think, you know, it it was an NHS um, counselor that I spoke to at the time, and he was he was afraid to say, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? Like, is is there any reason behind that? And I think, you know, for people who go to university and want to be therapists and actually genuinely want to help people, you have to remember your intention of why you became a a medical professional or a therapist in the first place is because you wanted to help people. And I think sometimes by helping people, you've just kind of got to stand up and speak up and say, actually, what is is true rather than what you think is right just because you're being told what is right. So I think, you know, break the rules, say what you need to say and actually help people. You know, I think that's the main thing, which is help people because there are actually are people out there that, you know, that are trans and they need this actual help. And, you know, they're being being pushed aside because, you know, people like myself at the time are are taking that space, you know?
1: Well, Calvin, we're going to keep you for a few more moments for um, a listener exclusive talking about kind of dinner table conversations, but we will leave it here for now. And we're so grateful for you telling your story. So thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thanks for joining us this week on Gender, A Wider Lens. Listener support means a lot to us. If you enjoy the show, please like and subscribe on iTunes and leave a review.
0: For more information, visit widerlenspod.com. There you'll learn about joining our listener community, how to contribute to our show, and where to find us on social media.
1: Our discussions are for educational purposes and are not intended as a substitute for mental health services.